These days, we hear about burnout all the time. And typically, when someone's dealing with it, we assume that it's mostly on them to take the time off or adjust their habits or whatever to work through it. But often, we're missing the bigger picture. Context, culture, and yes, management. On this episode, the larger perspective on burnout and what we can do to address and reduce it. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 608. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Just about every single person who's led anybody in any organization has heard the word burnout a lot in recent years. Of course, the pandemic has influenced that, but burnout has been a challenge long before the pandemic. And as leaders, of course, we care very much about the people that we have the privilege to lead and how we can address burnout proactively. And one of our invitations for us today is to think about burnout not just as something that is affecting an individual, but how we can be much more proactive at looking at it from the standpoint of leadership and management. I am so glad today to welcome an expert on burnout who's going to help us to really take the next step on what we can do as leaders in our organizations to address this much more proactively. I'm thrilled to introduce Christina Maslach to you. She is the pioneer of research on job burnout, producing the standard assessment called the Maslach Burnout Inventory, award-winning articles, and several books, beginning with Burnout, The Cost of Caring in 1982. Her research achievements over the past five decades have led to multiple awards from the National Academy of Sciences, Western Psychological Association, Society for Personality and Social Psychology, and many others. Christina has received awards for outstanding teaching, including USA Professor of the Year in 1997. She has been a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, since 1971. She is now a core researcher at the Healthy Workplaces Center at UC Berkeley and the author, along with Michael Light of the Burnout Challenge, Managing People's Relationships with Their Jobs. Christina, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be invited to be here with you today. This book is so powerful on reframing how I think many of us think about burnout. And the analogy that landed with me so strongly is when you begin the book with is thinking about the canary in the coal mine. I know many of us have heard of this practice before, but it really has a tie-in with burnout too. And I was wondering if you could share with us, what's the relationship between the canary in the coal mine and burnout? Mm, yes, thank you. The canary was used as a way to detect any potential harm or danger to workers. So in the mines, when before the miners would go down into the mines, the canary, which is a sensitive kind of bird, would go down in a cage first, be lowered down. And if the canary had trouble breathing or functioning or died even, it would be it's a sign, a signal, wait. Not that there's something wrong with the canary. It's not tough enough, strong enough to take whatever the workplace gives it, but to say there are dangerous conditions in the mine and other human beings like the miners should not be going down into it until it gets fixed and the toxic fumes are not a risk factor anymore. And what 
we want to say, use this analogy for is the fact that burnout, in a sense, is a response from people to a highly stressful, even toxic work environment. And the issue is not about how to make the canary more resilient and stronger and a tough old bird who can take anything, but it's telling you there are things about the work environment that are beginning to have a negative effect on the employees who are there. And so let's use it as a warning to say, how do we improve the mind, make it a safer, better environment for everyone who is working there? It's such a powerful analogy, and I want to come back to it because I think it illustrates what we can do differently as leaders, because a lot of times we think about how do we help the bird and make the bird tougher and send the bird yeah, back right. into the mine. And of course, there's all, there are some things that help in that, that co- help with coping, but there's a bigger opportunity here. And maybe we should even start with burnout itself. I've heard many definitions of burnout over the years. I know you've come across a lot as well, too. Oh, yes. What does the research show that you and Michael have done on what burnout actually is? It is a response to chronic job stressors that have not been successfully managed. And what happens then is that the person sort of experiences three interrelated components of that. The first, of course, is the stress response, and that's the exhaustion. You, When you are trying to deal with something with these stressors, we go into stress response mode, and it takes a toll on the human being on terms of both body and soul and mind. So the exhaustion. And many people think that's all there is to job burnout. You're just tired, overworked, overloaded, et cetera. You're stressed and you're exhausted, but you don't need to tack burnout on until we see two other things happening. One is the negative, hostile, cynical, take this job and shove it kind of mentality. If I can quote a country Western song, (laughs) Johnny Paycheck actually saying that long ago. And what that means is that this negative reaction to the workplace and how the job is being done and and what the decision making has been and what's affecting how everything i have to do here is leading me to say i'm not going to be doing the very best that i can do on this job i'm just going to do the bare minimum try to get out of here still get a paycheck so for me that's really more the hallmark of a job burnout, not just the exhaustion. I mean, that's the stress response. So the negative reaction to the job, the cynicism, but then there's also the risk with burnout that you begin to feel negatively about your own effectiveness in, in your job. So what's wrong with me? Why can't I take it and handle it? I don't want to let anybody know that I can't deal with it. Maybe this is the wrong choice for me. I should have been doing something else, not this. And it can lead to depression, anxiety, and the implication is in some occupations, such as healthcare, even suicide, that kind of thing. So three components go into burnout, the stress response of exhaustion, the negative response to the job, and the negative evaluation of oneself in terms of your effectiveness as a professional effectiveness. As I was reading the book, one of the paragraphs that I highlighted is this one, and I'm quoting Michael and you now. For people with burnout, the challenge of seeking help is compounded. Not only are they stigmatized for having the problem in the first place, but it is assumed that fixing the problem is also their own responsibility. The judgment is that burnout is dispositional, which is to say, it results from a person's natural tendencies as an individual. If someone needs help, the cause of the problem lies within her or him. 
I read that and I kept coming back to that and thinking that we tend to, as organizations, as people tend to focus on the person, the individual. And the real critical point for me is that fixing the person should not be the focus of this. I mean, the person maybe is the indicator, but that's it, it's looking at the larger system, right? Right. Yes, that's true. And in a way, when you think about it, if you think about the kind of mantras about the workplace that we always have been hearing for decades now, there was sort of an implicit recognition of that and endorsing that that kind of attitude. So if you think of something like the job is what it is, And so if you're going to do well, it's up to you to do the practice, get better, take care of yourself, deal with stress, et cetera. The job's not going to change. Or if you hear things like, well, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Yeah, It's another thing of saying the job is what it is. So they're recognizing that there can be a mismatch or a gap or a bad fit, but always the implication is you, the person, the worker, have to figure out how to bridge that gap and meet the job on its terms and figure out how to deal with the heat. So it's, you know, that's been there in in some kind of deep way in in our our cultural view about all of this. And I, I have to say that one of the things that happened during the pandemic, I mean, not trying to say there's a silver lining here, but this was a good thing, is that notion of the job is what it is bit the dust because you know what? We had to do a lot of jobs very differently and they could get done. Sometimes we didn't do them well. Sometimes we did them just as well or even better. So that notion of it's all on me, the individual, to meet the job is not completely true. We could figure out a better way of designing the job so that people are better matched, have a better fit with it, get a good start, enjoy doing what they're doing, proud that they're there, all of these these good kinds of things. You said both the words match and mismatch in yeah. the last minute or so. And those yeah. <laughs> those words, like the the term mismatch comes up for me a lot when I think about this book and I think about burnout. And it strikes me as like a helpful way to think about this that's maybe a little healthier than just thinking about this as this is a problem with an individual or this is the problem with the canary to continue the analogy. What's helpful about thinking about this from a standpoint of mismatch? Well, again, this concept of, of a mismatch or or a bad fit is not a new one in some ways. I mean, we bring a new perspective to it, but for quite some time, it's been there out there in the world when we talk about how to better design the physical environment to support the human body, for example. So we have learned that if we get a better match, a better fit between people and their workplace, redesign chairs that they sit in so that it doesn't bring on muscular skeletal problems, or we change the design of computer workstations to avoid the risk of carpal tunnel syndrome. So that's been around for quite a while, but it's all focused really more on the physical person. How how can we have a healthier, better environment, a better fit that supports the body, doesn't strain it, doesn't injure it in some way? The new perspective we're bringing is to say, we also should be paying a lot of attention to social psychological features of that match between the person and the job. 
In other words, what makes people tick? What makes them motivated? What makes them innovative? What makes them helpful, careful about checking for errors? All of those kind of things. It's not about the physical, but it's like what in the environment is helping those kinds of core psychological needs and characteristics that we all have as human beings, what and kind of an environment actually enables that to happen more often. So when we talk about mismatches and we've identified six areas in that job person fit or job person match, six areas which are predictive of burnout if there's a mismatch. And if you get closer to better matches, more toward engagement. But that's that's really the, the, the main argument that we're trying to present here, the thinking about how to enhance the environment so that the you're getting the best out of the people who come and they're feeling really good and proud about what they're able to contribute. So the match mismatch is is really a different way of thinking about what creates a healthy, enabling, supportive environment mm. for the people in them. Yeah, indeed. And you told me burnout is first and foremost a management issue. And one of the first things that you invite us to do is to shift from focusing on what may be wrong with the person and focusing instead on what's wrong with the relationship between the person and the situation. What does that look like? What that looks like is that when you're you're seeing or finding out that people are having some problems or difficulties or complaints or whatever about some kind of thing, is to be asking the question about why that might be happening, not just who is experiencing it, but why they are experiencing that. And a why question is more likely to take you to the context, to the coal mine, if you will, because you're going to be looking for what are other factors that are going on there that might be relevant to why that person is reacting that way. To the extent, I mean, if you ask a who question, you tend to get who answers. But if you shift the question to why, what what, what are the causes of this, not just what are the effects, then it opens up some possibilities about why somebody is is having a real problem coping with these stressors. It may turn out that to get the equipment that they need to do the job in a hospital clinic, they have to run down to another floor and get to another place to get a copier and it's not ready or to go or whatever. And they're wasting time not being with their patient and, and they're getting frustrated and they're getting annoyed and they're spending less time and all that kind of stuff and feeling bad about it because I'm supposed to work with patients. That's what it is. I'm not supposed to be running around trying to find the, the necessary materials that I need or the necessary tools. So, so that's where when you start asking why or, or leaders are doing what we call walk around leadership, sort of an old concept again, and actually see, oh, so that's what's, that's the pebble in the shoe that people are always complaining about and is, is, is causing them to feel they're not doing their job as well as they could, feeling upset that nobody is actually trying to do something about that. So they don't have to do this other, you know, unnecessary steps to, to get the job done and getting exhausted and tired and feeling cynical by the end of the day about this. So it's focusing on the relationship is really looking at what are the things that that people are having difficulty with and 
what is it about the setup, the the resources we have, the time limits we put on things, whatever? What is it about the immediate job right there that might be making this more of a struggle for people rather than an easy way to get that part of the job done? I'm thinking about that shift, and I'm sure you've seen many times that managers have gone into situations well-intended to find that relationship between the person and the situation, and they don't quite get there. It ends up being more of a transactional conversation or observation. And and of course, there are times that people go in and they truly do start to see that. When you see managers begin to make that shift a bit to really start to see both, to see the person and the situation and the relationship between them, what is it you find that helps just to get them started on beginning yeah. to go down that path a bit? I think. I mean, I think there are many things that, that, that could be done, but one of the things that c- comes across a lot, and this is both from not just the managers, but a lot of the employees in different levels that I talk to, is that at s- some level, they really want to feel that their manager is on their side, is advocating for us as a team, the unit doing whatever we're doing, that if rather than necessarily just imp- telling them what upper management is saying we have to do and imposing stuff top down. There needs to be a more bottom-up, sideways communication process where people feel they can trust their manager, they can go to their manager, they can go as a group to their manager and say, oh, this is this is getting problematic over here. What could we do about it? And having a sense that say, ah, okay, yeah, let's let's figure this out. So there's a sense of the way this comes across in a different way, maybe this is more helpful, is wanting to have a good, supportive, trusting relationship with the manager more than once a year with the annual review. Mm. The stuff that happens every week, like, so how's it going? Is it running smoothly now? Or do we have a, oh, we've got something unexpected, huh? Maybe we need to all get together and kind of figure out you know, why we didn't think about that, but now we need to sort of figure out how we could improve that. Another way of saying it is that a lot of people have written, emailed, whatever, saying, do I have to go to my manager and confess that I, I'm feeling really burned out and I need some accommodation? And my response is usually, I don't think that's a good strategy because it just puts you right into the person who, you know, individuals who can't do the job and the finger pointing will start and it doesn't it doesn't really do it. But if it becomes not so much a me problem, but a we problem and not just a we problem, but focusing on how do we make stuff better? How do we start conversations about what is going well? What are we doing okay? But are there, are there things that are coming up that the phrase often used that may be more helpful is pebbles in your shoe as these mm. chronic job stressors are. And they're not necessarily big things. They could be smaller things, but they really wear you down. They're painful. They're always there. You're always having to work around and stuff like that. So if there's, I don't think we need self-confessions of burnout to get to the place where we say, Let's just check in periodically and see how are things going and are there places where we need to sort of rethink how we do the job or is there there something we could get rid of that we don't really need to do anymore or something like that. If it's a we focusing on how to make it better, it takes the stigma away. It focuses on 
practical, let's improve this. It's a more positive way to get at building these kind of better bridges and the relationships between people and their jobs than just sort of people feeling beaten down and not really understood or known or respected because there's really not any conversation about how we could do this in a better way. So it's. I think there are a lot of ways to open up that conversation. One of the things we do in the book towards the end is talk about, and borrow from healthcare actually, the notion of a regular checkup for an organization or for a team or for a unit, rather than some of the other ways in which we we do assessments of how well people are working on the job. And the checkup is, you don't go to the house. I mean, you don't do a checkup when you're in crisis, you've broken your leg, you're sick with COVID. I mean, you're in the hospital, but you go in just when things are sort of more normal going along and, and, and you check what's, what's going well in my health. What are warning signs that maybe I'm putting on too much weight or I've got some blood pressure issues or, you know, and there are implications then, well, okay, could I change lifestyle? Could I change meds? Could I change whatever? But you do it regularly, like every year, or every two years, and and just to check in. And so an organizational checkup, which says, so how are we doing? What's what's working well? Where are we still running into some issues and obstacles? Find out from employees, listen to them, and get some better ideas of, okay, what could we tackle? What could we do? Makes it a much more collaborative effort. And people feeling that we're all in this together and we kind of care about each other and we're willing to to go forward. And I think that would help deal with some of the big mismatches we see in terms of socially toxic work cultures where people don't know who to turn to, who to talk to, or afraid they're going to get thrown under the bus. It's it's you want a sense of belongingness, like, yeah, I can be here and do something well, and a sense of your the competence you have and and feeling psychologically safe. I can speak up and point out, wow, we're not doing such a good job over there. Maybe we could change it somehow or figure out a better way and not get dumped on. But Or even if the idea is, well, we can't do it because at least there's a way in which people feel they're being heard. Mm. And I think that's just a, a deep, deep psychological social need we all have of wanting to feel good about what we're doing, a feeling we have the ability to do it well, that we have ideas and, and contributions we could make, that we're proud of what we're accomplishing, that I will help other people and I hope other people will help me when I need it. So we've got that reciprocal kind of mutual supportive relationship going on here. It's, it's really focusing on those rather than who do we blame for burnout and what's wrong with them. Yeah, and boy, there's there's two things you said there that just leapt out at me as like really helpful practical places for people to start. And one of them is I, I'm thinking about what you said of like the pebble in your shoe, right? That, yes. And, and what a fun question to ask. Maybe fun's not the right word, but like coming yeah. in as a manager and saying, "What's the pebble in your shoe right now?" Like just ask, opening with that and yeah. being curious. And I hear so much of like curiosity and listening to what you're saying. And then yeah. the other piece of it, thinking about the checkup, and, and you point this out in the book too, is that, of course many organizations do surveys. Many mm. organizations don't do anything that with the results of the survey. Or, oh, yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I just say Please, that that yeah. is a really bad practice if you do not, if you take a survey, ask people for their opinions, their comments, their self-evaluation, whatever is in the survey that you think is important to do, you must, must, must give a report back 
and say, what did we learn from this? What were the themes that came out? Maybe not everybody's came out with the same answers. We got a group that says this and another one that's going over here. We heard, however, a lot of people really talking about this area that we need to work on. And then to say, what have we not now that we've learned this, how are we going to move forward on it? Should we try and set up a process to make some changes here? Do we need to rethink some of this? Or here's the problem where we can't, where we're sort of locked in on these kind of things given federal regulations. And here's why. But what could we do in other ways? When we do research, we are bound by the ethics of doing research that any participant who comes in to do something for us or answers questions or whatever must be what we call debriefed, must be given a full explanation of what is the research about? What have we learned about it? What have you contributed to it? Do you have any comments about it? And so the idea of asking people to participate and give information and and so forth, and then not get back to them, deeply, deeply, deeply wrong. And I must say that when I talk to people in a lot of organizations over the years, that is one of their biggest complaints, and it fuels the cynicism, quite honestly. Why should I be answering these questions every year when we never hear anyway? So I'm making it up. I don't answer. I just draw a line down the middle. I mean, you're getting garbage in after a while, and that's garbage in, garbage out. It becomes, and, and, I, and I am surprised still always how often there is no feedback. And it's it's so wrong. I mean, it's like having a conversation, talk to me, and then I, I don't answer your questions. I don't get back to you. I don't say thanks for taking the time and effort to put these ideas out there. I mean, usually the first time people really take it more seriously and put in ideas and comments, and then they never hear or they never see anything that suggests that anybody ever looked at it. So asking for input on surveys and stuff is not a bad thing, but you need to be able to honor people's contribution by responding to it. Yeah. Whatever the answers are, I mean, here's what we can do, here's what we cannot, you know, all that kind of thing. I mean, you know, another mantra that comes to mind that we were hearing a lot before the pandemic even is a message, sorry, you're going to have to do more with less. And that was kind of a message that would be coming down like, okay, we're not going to hire more people. We're not going to be able to get this other tools or equipment. We have more contracts, but we don't have more resources to spend on it. So all of you are going to have to do more with less. Bad math, and it is demoralizing message to hear. And when you've compounded that by not answering and responding to what people said about the situation they're in, it has some very, very, very negative impacts. And oh, you know, indeed. to say that people are going to burn out as a result in terms of the exhaustion of trying to meet that demand and feeling negative and cynical about how do these people run this place if we do more and don't get anything and have less you know, resources to bring? And then feeling, oh, I'm not proud of how I'm doing this job because I'm doing it by the seat of my pants and making choices that are maybe, I don't know if they're good or not, but it's a, a tool that can be used very well. It can also be used incredibly badly. And I think people just need to realize that one really bad consequence of doing this is not responding and saying, what did we learn from this? What were the answers that people gave? What was the profile that came out from this? Almost worse than doing nothing in that case. And, yes. Oh my know, gosh, yes. And there's three things coming up for me thinking about that. One of them is if you're going to do a survey, 
commit in advance to making sure you're going to communicate back, figure out the yes. timeline, the schedule, how you're going to do yes. that, budget, whatever. Secondly, if you've already done the survey and you haven't yet done that, it's not too late, like, better late than never, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think the third thing that's coming up is that before you do the next survey, tell people what you did to address something from the first survey, right? Like, exactly. here's what we did. Here's what we actually changed. My friend Oscar Trimboli, who's been on the show before, talks about the importance of listening. And like, if you're going to ask people to give survey feedback, first tell them what you did with the last survey so it demonstrates that you've actually been listening and paying attention. Yes. And boy, so yes. many organizations not only don't do all three, like don't even do one of those well. Yeah, yeah. And, and it has... Really negative and, as I say, long-lasting consequences because it's it's not like people are machines and you put out a survey and you get all the data back and stuff like that. They have, as I said, when you think of all the those psychological, social motives that make us human, we, we want to feel that we're respected. We want to feel that we know what we're doing, that we have something to contribute, that we can make things better for everybody. We want to be proud about the organization we work in. All of those kind of things can get just hit badly. A simple thing about not answering. Easy not to ever get there, you know, and sort of say, oh, no, it's not so important. And particularly, I hear this from leadership often, you know, we do these surveys this year and then the next year and whatever is, you know, they're using whatever, Gallup engagement surveys. The needle never moves. So it's like from them perspective, maybe say, well, there's nothing to learn from it because we get 30%, 29% engaged, now 20%, you know, what? It's, it's, I, I think they're not seeing and not realizing that they're not actually mining, if I can go back to the mining example, mining the the answers and the results from that in a productive way. And if they can't understand why people all said this or there was a split about it, then go talk to people and find out what's going on here or mm. check with your managers about what why this unit seemed to be going one way and another one another one. There, there's ways to use this information, but to ignore it and not to share it after you've asked people to share and the content is is just I I I don't want to just say that it's wrong. It's just haven't realized the potential for a negative long-lasting impact that leads to and adds to the more chronic stress that people feel and that which causes burnout. I keep coming back to what you said earlier, that burnout is first and foremost a management issue. And so my invitation is for those who are experiencing these team members who are struggling with burnout right now, what a good starting point this book is. We've just scratched the surface. There's so much that we can do as individual managers in our organizations and teams and in fact, perhaps it's the most important leverage point, yes. even more so than at the executive level of, of as an individual manager. There's so much we can do, as we've talked about, to shift away from just thinking about this as a one-person-only challenge. So I'd invite you to get the book, to dive in on this. There's so many strategies that Michael and Christina have outlined. Christina, you have been doing this research for 50 years. What an incredible <laughs> gift you've given to all of us on being able to think about this in a more productive and a more holistic way. And I'm I'm curious in the recent years, as you've continued to research, as you've continued your work, of course, this new book, what have you changed your mind on? I think I've come to better appreciate than I did when I started out how much 
the environment, the social, physical environment, interpersonal environment in which we operate all the time, at work, at home, in the neighborhood, wherever, how much impact that has on shaping how we respond and what we do. And so if we focus too much just on the person and the effects that is happening to them without taking into account what's causing it in that larger environment, we may end up with just the wrong way of understanding the problem. And if we get ways, you know, the wrong way in the sense that we're going to just focus on the individual and what do we do about the individual and stuff like that. I don't mean to object to coping, but I think we cannot prevent problems like this if we don't understand the why question in that larger situation that is has many ways of enhancing what we do or you know bringing obstacles to what we do it's a complex kind of thing but the message that i want to be able to get across is that the people who experience burnout is and as i've interviewed them over 50 years now are telling stories about how that larger environment is leading to an experience that is less than great for them and for the people they contact and touch and deal with and and all the rest of it. And we can make these environments better. And if there is ever a time to really focus on the job conditions, the job environment, and how to make it better, it's now after, or or hopefully soon after, getting past the pandemic, which showed us that jobs can change and can in bigger ways than maybe we've thought of before. They have to change. The world changes. We weren't as ready for the pandemic, but we had to figure out strategies and and ways to, to react. Let's learn from the lessons of what worked well, what didn't work well during that pandemic, and think about how could we, in the world we now live in, what's going to be a better set of issues and ways in which we can design and kind of work with people to get a better environment where they thrive rather than get beaten down. So I think that's the main kind of thing that has come across to me as I've been doing this work. Christina Maslach is co-author of The Burnout Challenge, Managing People's Relationships with Their Jobs. Christina, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You probably noticed we didn't say much in this conversation about individual coping strategies for burnout. That's because, well, it wasn't the focus of the conversation, and also that is the conversation we almost always are having, is how does the individual cope? Many resources from Christina and others on that, and one of those resources is in her book, Chapter 2, I'd recommend as a starting point for much of her research on how you may cope as an individual if you're dealing with that right now or you're working with someone who's dealing with that. Thanks again, Christina, for all of your work. Several related episodes I'd recommend that'll also help on some of those individual strategies. One of those is episode 409, Gallup's Findings on the Changing Nature of Work with Jim Harder. Jim, chief scientist at Gallup, talked about all of the work that Gallup's been doing to surface data for us around the globe, looking at leadership and organizations and culture. And the findings again and again and again over the decades from Gallup have been so consistent. On this point, the manager makes a huge difference, both for good or bad, depending on how it plays out in the kind of workplace that evolves, how motivated people are, 
burnout levels. So many things tie back to the individual manager. It's one of the reasons I'm so glad you're listening to this episode and you've taken the time to invest in how you may get better. Episode 409 is a good complement to this conversation. On some of the individual strategies, I'd recommend episode 561. Jennifer Moss joined me for that episode on how to reduce burnout. We talked a little bit more at the micro level of what you can do as an individual leader and also some of the individual coping strategies for burnout. What does that look like? She pulls on some of Christina's work as well, episode 561 for that. And then finally, I recommend episode 582. How to Compare Yourself to Others with Molly West Duffy. She was my guest. That that title a little bit tongue-in-cheek because, of course, we've all been told we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to others. Of course, we all do, right? And so we do tend to compare our weaknesses, though, to other people's strengths. One of the things Molly and I talked about in that episode and looked at her work is given the fact that we're going to compare ourselves to everyone else anyway, even though we've all been told we shouldn't, How do we do it in a much more productive way that helps us to cope better and have a much more healthy perspective? Episode 582 for that, I think an important addition to this conversation. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to a ton of benefits. The weekly leadership guide you'll receive from me on email each week with all the details from the episode, the links, the keynotes, the resources I've been finding, uh, our entire episode library searchable by topic since 2011, and also full access to my own personal library. When you log in with your free membership, you're going to see a link in there that says Dave's Library. I have databased every article I have found that I've passed along in the weekly guides, all podcast episodes that I've been found found and used in my own work from me, but more importantly, from others out there who have other perspectives that'll be helpful to you. Articles in resources, Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal. I have been databasing those for years and tagging them to make them useful to you to be able to find the article you're looking for, the credibility piece for a client, that resource that you need to be able to have that third party evidence that says, hey, here's something that's going to be helpful for us as an organization. I've done all the work for you. Go and sign up for the free membership at coachingforleaders.com. Click on Dave's Library. You're going to see an entire list of topics there all of those resources database so you can access them freely available. Help yourself. I hope you find that useful as a starting point for the resource you're looking for right now. Next week, I'm glad to welcome global consultant and guru Ram Charan to the show. Ram is going to be walking us through how to lead through inflation. Inflation, a big challenge around the world right now. The macroeconomic picture is changing, of course. We're going to be talking about what individual leaders can do to think about leading through inflation and recession, what we can do that's a lot more proactive. Join me for that conversation with Ram next week. Have a great week and see you on Monday.